Hi everyone, I want to dive into a discussion about Mary Knowles Murphy's collection of short stories in the Tennessee mountains. Specifically, I want to be discussing, did Murphy's use of harmful stereotypes regarding Appalachia increase over time as she wrote each short story, and if so, what seems to be the driving force? So before I really get into the question, I want to give some background for those who aren't familiar with this collection of short stories or with Murphy. Murphy was a crippled woman who was born in 1850 and wrote stories of Appalachia under the pseudonym Charles Egbert Craddock. Murphy described Appalachia as if she was from there, even using a pseudonym that led many people to believe she was a so-called mountain man. However, despite all this, Murphy never actually lived in Appalachia. Today, Murphy is often highly criticized for her use of damaging stereotypes of Appalachian culture in her literature, especially considering she wasn't even from Appalachia herself. Her depictions of the people of Appalachia include stereotypes like toothless, poor, violent, stupid, and so on. Another aspect of Murphy's work that is criticized is her use of overblown so-called Appalachian dialect. When I began reading in the Tennessee mountains, I could barely even decipher what was being said. Most passages had to be read out loud to even be semi-comprehensible. Many feel this dialect was highly exaggerated and is not a reflection of how those in Appalachian spoke at the time or today. So if many scholars and academics have established her writing did perpetuate negative stereotypes of Appalachia, what is really the point of my discussion today? So like mentioned earlier, I really want to dive into the question of did Murphy's use of harmful stereotypes regarding Appalachia increase over time as she wrote each story, and if so, what seems to be the driving force? When answering this question, it is very important to remember that the short stories from In the Tennessee Mountains are not in the chronological order that they were individually published. For example, The Dancing Party at Harrison's Cove was the first to be published in 1878, and Drifting Down Lost Creek was the last to be published in 1884. However, Drifting Down Lost Creek is the first short story listed in in the Tennessee mountains. Based on my personal opinion, as well as my peers at WVU, Drifting Down Lost Creek seemed to be the most heavily stereotyped short story from the collection. While all the stories had damaging stereotypes throughout, Drifting Down Lost Creek seemed to have the heaviest dialect and the most exaggerated stereotypes. For example, in the first few pages, Murphy describes the main character's mother as such. She paused to prod the boiling clothes with a long stick. She was a tall woman, 50 years of age, perhaps, but seeming much older. So gaunt she was, so toothless, haggard, and disheveled, that but for her lazy step and languid interest, she might have suggested one of Macbeth's witches, as she hovered about the great cauldron. Because her most recent short story from the novel seems the most extreme and her earlier pieces aren't as bad, it leads me to believe her work became increasingly more exaggerated and filled with stereotypes over time. 
So if this is the case, why could this be? In order to answer this question, I will be referring to a number of academic texts by individuals who are either highly regarded in Appalachian studies or highly involved. I will be offering a number of theories of why the exaggeration of Appalachia and usage of stereotypes increased over time. First, I will be referencing Karen J. Jacobson's journal article, Another Reappraisal, The Cultural Work of Mary Knowles Murphy's in the Tennessee Mountains. This is from the Appalachian Journal, Volume 35. In this journal article, Jacobson is discussing Shapiro's Appalachia on our mind, as well as her own insights on the points he is proposing. I want to read a passage from Jacobson's journal article that will bring me to my first point. This is from pages 95 and 96. This conflict between sympathizing with yet maintaining distance from the mountaineers is evident throughout the stories in, in the Tennessee Mountains. Shapiro's classic study, Appalachia on Our Mind, is useful in understanding how the conflicts in Murphy's work are part of a larger project of othering in the United States. Specifically, Shapiro discusses how in the mid to late 19th century, the mountain regions in the southern states became known as a distinct area of the nation and were thought to have a homogeneous population and culture. Prior to this period, these mountain regions were considered to be much like rural areas in other parts of the country. Shapiro proposes that the discovery of Appalachia coincided with a period following the Civil War in which new notions of America came into vogue, that America was, or becoming, or ought to become, a unified and homogeneous national entity, and that what characterized such an entity was a coherent and uniform national culture. Shapiro does not discuss the roots of this need for national unity, but it is not difficult to imagine a society craving sameness after the ravages of civil war and in response to anxiety stemming from rapid social and economic changes during the late 19th century. Darlene Wilson describes the tumultuous period between 1880 and 1920 in which there was a phenomenal growth in the number and size of major metropolitan areas fed by intense, if cyclical, migration from the rural south as well as from eastern and southern Europe. Out of these crises of identity and purpose, whites fashioned legislative remedies such as anti-immigration laws and the institutionalization of Jim Crow. Whites conducted 100% Americanization campaigns in the schools and neighborhoods of European immigrants, African Americans, and Southern Mountaineers. Together, these corrective measures acted to purge Americanism of any taint of otherness. Homogeneity topped the agenda. Initially, however, this quest for homogeneity took the form of nationalism that hungered for information regarding any picturesque little corners of the nation not yet assimilated into the middle-class, nationally-oriented culture which seemed dominant in America. Local color writers of the mid to late 19th century flooded the magazine market to meet this demand, 
depicting unfamiliar locals, including southern mountain regions. Shapiro explained that through their writing, local colorists fixed the idea that these regions were strange lands inhabited by peculiar people, reiterated in some 90 sketches in more than 125 short stories published between 1870 and 1890. It, the local colorist vision, established Appalachia in the public consciousness as a discrete region in, but not of, America. At first, the perceived distinctiveness of the mountain regions or other unfamiliar locals posed no threat to the middle-class ideals of unity and homogeneity. Instead, the mountain region's peculiarities were seen as exceptions that proved the rule of the dominance of the national culture. In addition, many local colors depicted their subjects as belonging to the past, quaint, and comfortably distant from the modern mainstream America. Shapiro explores in-depth the process through which the idea of Appalachia as a quaint and primitive became transformed into a problem for the American psyche. The existence of Appalachia itself now appeared as a problem to be solved in the apparent disparity between mountain life and normal life of Americans elsewhere in the nation as a social problem to be remedied through systematic benevolence, either through making the difference seem normal or by eradicating the difference altogether. By the late 19th century, Appalachia was a place that created dissonance for an America that was struggling to define its own identity as a unified, homogeneous nation. So from reading Jacobson's article, I want to share my personal take on the matter. So for starters, humans typically like what they can't have. People love escapism. People are typically drawn in and intrigued by what is unfamiliar to them. In a time period where homogeneity seemed on the top of America's mind, most likely due to fear and anxiety of another civil war like Jacobson suggested, it's no surprise individuals were looking for something new, different, and intriguing, something that allowed them to escape into a new realm. Therefore, local color fiction became highly in demand. These stories, based around Appalachia, were seen, weren't seen as a threat to mainstream life at first because they were so otherized, and Appalachia stories became an exception to homogeneity. Then over time, mountain life, as it was put, seemed like a threat to normal life. This so-called threat had two solutions, by making the difference seem normal or to eradicate the difference altogether, like shown in the journal article. Therefore, there seemed to be heavy publishing pressure to make Appalachia seem as other as possible. So this here ultimately leads me to my first major theory for why the work became increasingly exaggerated over time. When something sells, and it was selling because people were looking for otherizing content at the time, people think, hey, if I do more of that, it will sell even more. And the more extreme I make it, 
the even better it will sell. It seemed Murphy's use of stereotypes over time became more and more over the top because that was ultimately what she believed people wanted as well as her publisher and what would sell best. And what sells best makes the most money. Next, I will be referencing David C. Chun's chapter, The Creation of Appalachian Images, from his book Two Worlds in the Tennessee Mountains, exploring the origins of Appalachian stereotypes. First, I want to read an excerpt from pages 176 to 177. Murphy believed that her stories depicted mountain life truthfully. She told her editors that the stories composing in the Tennessee mountains all treat of the same subject and locality, the mountaineer and mountains of East Tennessee, and apart from any value which they may possess as fiction, they give together a pretty accurate picture of the various phases of life among an interesting primitive and little-known people in a wild and secluded region. The editors agreed, eventually writing back, that the company was so interested in the freshness of your material and so impressed by your apparent fidelity in the rendering of mountain life that we should like to try the fortune of such a volume. The public was, sim the public was similarly convinced. For northern churches gave home missionaries copies of In the Tennessee Mountains to use as a first mission study text for those who wished to understand conditions in the region. I now want to jump to pages 179 to 180 to read another passage. Murphy develops her image of the mountaineers, her pretty accurate picture, from her memories of summers spent from the ages of 6 to 21 at the mountain resort of Beersheba Springs, located 100 miles east of the family home in Murfreesboro. Beersheba Springs served as the resort of wealth, of fashion, and beauty of southern family who rode from their distant plantations in luxury-appointed carriages drawn by splendid-blooded horses. From 1856 to 1870, Mary Knowles Murphy spent every May through October in the company of such society. In the process, she met local residents who came into town. Her sister Franny remembered occasions when sad, when sad-faced, pallid mountain women in Coleco or homespun dresses and drooping sunbonnets would come into the big wide hall and seat themselves in a row on sofas against the wall or in the swaying cane rockers. As Mary played the piano and sang, gaunt men slid in silently and effaced themselves against the wall. After an hour, they would at some hiatus silently stroll out. At other times, there would be they would linger for a little conversation with Miss Murphy, where they were willing, where they willingly expressed their own customs and possessions. The two sisters sometimes left the immediate town and went foraging among the mountain homes for butter and eggs, chickens, fresh fruits, and vegetables for their table. In this way, they met and talked 
with the women of the region and saw the interiors of their bare little homes. Such childhood and early adult memories of an easy, easily accessible mountain area form the basis of Murphy's descriptions of the more remote regions. She wrote to her editor, I was early familiar with their primitive customs, dialect, and peculiar views of life for I used to spend much of time in the mountains long before I knew the existence of such a thing as literary material. Since then, of course, they have been doubly suggestive. The text I just read brings me to my next theory why Murphy's work became increasingly exaggerated over time, and that is that Murphy truly believed she knew and understood Appalachian culture from her exposure to the people throughout her life and that she was the go-to person for sharing in this information with the world. It's not uncommon for humans to overestimate their abilities, so it truly is a possibility that Murphy felt her depictions were accurate and she became better at the skill as time passed, thus explaining increasing exaggerations over time. Lastly, I'll be taking a paragraph from the chapter Charm and Virility, circa 1884, from Emily Satterwhite's Dear Appalachia. On page 49, Satterwhite states, Murphy was a central figure in highbrow literary circles, largely because she was perceived as marginal. As the authentic voice of a rural mountain way of life, peripheral to seats of elite culture and power. After the sensational revelation that Craddock was a refined lady rather than a rough and ready mountaineer, commentators continued to consider Murphy a mountain insider, even as her success allowed her to travel in refined circles with some of the biggest celebrities and socialites of her day. During the famed trip to Boston in March 1885, for example, the Murphy sisters were house guests at the Aldrich's, spent time with William James, Mark Twain, and Nathaniel Hawthorne's daughter, and visited Emerson's grave with his son. Socialite Miss Royal E. Robbins opened her oceanfront house to the Murphy sisters and a dozen ladies from Boston. After reading this passage, I began to form another possible explanation for the short stories becoming more exaggerated over time. So since the main audience for literature at the time was highbrow readers, and highbrow readers seemed to want content that made them feel above others and ensured them their status was not at risk, and Murphy wanted to be a part of the elite circle, it's possible that Murphy made the characters more and more otherized over time because she knew this would satisfy the highbrow readers at the time and could be a potential ticket to elite culture. This would allow her to reap the benefits of such like recognition and celebrity contacts like discussed in the excerpt before. In conclusion, while it cannot be definitively stated why Murphy seemingly increased usage of stereotypes and otherizing occurred over time. The theories mentioned before offer some insight into this question 
and offer up potential reasonings for such. Furthermore, these insights can be utilized to guide further research into this topic. I hope you guys enjoyed today's discussion. That will be all. Thank you.